just to take a moment to thank the elders for the invite to preach. I'm very thankful for that privilege. And just catch you up just a little bit. Um, having left Redeemer, um, I guess seven or eight years ago, I can't figure it out now. I try to figure it out and it's uh, hard anymore without actually going back and looking at the dates. But I worked as an assistant pastor at uh, one church for three years, um, and then we moved, and it was too far away, and uh, so now I've uh, worked at this other church part-time, assistant pastor, for four years. And Lord willing, at the end of this year, I'm going to be what's called honorably retired um, at the current church we're at, but uh, it looks like I might continue uh, as a visitation pastor, uh, just a couple hours a week where I won't have to do uh, the kind of things that I've been doing regularly for a pastor over the years, but get to meet with people and counsel them and do that. But I think the uh, most amazing thing, and this is just a great testimony of God's grace, is that uh, last week, Marg and I celebrated 50 years of marriage. And... Uh, uh, if you would have followed our first couple years, uh, you would know <laughs> how good and kind God is and has been over the years. Encouragement to you because there'll be times uh, over those years, I want to encourage you young ones, you say, this is hard. How have we grown apart? Can we grow back together? Are we going to commit to that? And yes, you can by God's grace. And uh, how wondrous it is that Mark and I love each other more than we ever have. So I just want to encourage all of you who might be struggling at times. There's other older Christians that can help you, the Word of God, and it's a great testimony of our good and faithful God um, to that. Well, if you looked at the sermon title this morning, uh, The 11th Commandment, I trust that it got your attention because you know that God only gave us 10. Recent surveys done without the church have found that most people could only name a few. And sadly, within the church, it wasn't much better. Yet it seems that a large portion of our culture knows Matthew 7.1, judge not that you be not judged. And maybe that's the 11th commandment, they think. A study by Ligonier Ministries, along with Lifeway Research, has shown how this refusal to judge others has affected the church. Because 56% of self-described evangelicals believed that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And maybe as you have sought to tell others about Jesus and his claims to be the only way to salvation, that is, the exclusivity of Christ to others, you may have experienced what Robert Rothwell described in Table Talk magazine. In the name of tolerance, we are told that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. The truly enlightened, it is said, do not accept the existence of other religious truth claims. They also affirm that it all paths by which we can find our way up the mountain to God, whoever we want him to be. Now, you've probably heard that before, that all religions are going up in their own mountaintop path to get to God. God's at the top. 
But the Christianity says this. God isn't on a mountain. God rules over the old world, and we can't go there because we're dead in sin. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. So we can't climb any supposed mountain to God. God must come down, give us life, and redeem us, and give us the righteousness of Christ. Totally the opposite of what the world believes. Of course, to construe tolerance in this way, the world does, is to grossly misunderstand the virtue. Tolerance is a good thing when rightly practiced. For example, I can tolerate my atheist neighbor by being charitable and friendly towards him, respecting him as a person and seeking to understand his views honestly rather than some character of his ideas. But there is a distinct difference between toleration and affirmation. We have embraced affirmation and not tolerance. If tolerance means that I cannot tell my friend that he's mistaken regarding God's existence, it is clear, therefore, that the so-called tolerance of our society embraces is actually the most insidious form of intolerance. Western culture at large freely tolerates any worldview as long as that worldview does not claim others to be false. The only exclusive claim one can make is that no one can make an exclusive claim. The only exclusive claim one can make is no one can make an exclusive claim. Well, Al Mohler of Southern Seminary reveals the foolishness and even danger of this kind of thinking with this example. If you engage in a conversation with a person who says, well, I would never judge, then ask them if they would hire a known child molester to babysit their child. As we will look at Matthew 7, 1, remember that it's found in the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he describes to those who are his disciples the nature of biblical judgments. And then, as you will see, just five verses later, he calls us to make these judgments for the sake of ourselves and others. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 6, and then I'll pray. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Well, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, 
lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Our Father and God, how we thank you that you have given us your whole word for our lives to reveal to us our need and how to be saved through our Savior Jesus, but also looking to him, empowered by your spirit, how to live. Help us see and understand and apply that we would live as a people who glorify you. For we do pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, as we look at Matthew 7, 1, that first verse, Jesus compels you, Jesus compels me, he compels his people, the church, to make charitable judgments. Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. Jesus gives further commentary about our judgments in the Gospel of John, John 7, 24, where he said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So what Jesus is speaking about is the character of the way we judge. The church has historically cried, described this as charitable judgments. Making a charitable judgment means that out of love for God, you strive to believe the best about others until you have facts to prove otherwise. In other words, if you can reasonably interpret facts in two possible ways, God calls you to embrace the positive interpretation over the negative, or at least to postpone making any judgment until you can acquire the conclusive facts. This is not new to the church. Martin Luther described the danger of our sinful judgmentalism well. He said this, our depraved Eagerness for biting, censuring, and slandering is restrained by Christ when he says, judge not. But it's not necessary for believers to become blind and perceive nothing, but only that we should refrain from an undue eagerness to judge. For otherwise, the proper bounds of rigor will be exceeded by every man who desires to pass sentence on his brother. This disease, in the first place, draws continually along with it the injustice of condemning any trivial fault, as if it had been a very heinous crime, and next break out into insolent presumption of looking disdainfully at every action and passing an unfavorable judgment on it, even when it might be viewed in a good light. And this kind of judgment is so well ingrained in us that I could be sitting in a church session meeting where I've been with these brothers for years. I know them. We love one another. But we're hotly debating some kind of issue. And while we're going on, you know, one of them says something. And inside, I love the brother. I know him well. We've done stuff together. And I'm saying, you fool. You know, and then someone will say something, and I go, I can't believe he said that, right? And then I'll say something, and everybody doesn't agree, and I'm wondering why they just didn't stop and say, Pastor, you must have stepped down from the mount to tell us that, right? And these are the people I love, how we do with others. You know, it's just so ingrained, and God, thankfully, God is gracious over the years to stop us. And I remember 
one session meeting recently we had where I was so thankful that the brothers loved the situation and the person we we're dealing with and rejected my idea. It was just wondrous. It was great. But we just have to understand that it's so built in with us with husband and wife, brothers and sisters. And so we need to hear what God is saying here. And look, the only thing that's going to change us here is the gospel. Because think of the things that haven't changed in your life or sins you haven't overcome yet. And yet Christ continues to love us daily. He doesn't kick us out. He doesn't crush us. But he continues to call us and love us. And so it's that kind of love that he's calling us to do, those kind of judgments. And then Matthew 7, 2 goes on to say with this warning, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to do. Jesus warned that your unkind judgments of others will be returned on your own head when God shall judge all men on the final day. The principle is that you reap what you sow in all of life and specifically here with our judgments of others. It took me a long time to mature and by God's grace, even though I've got lots of gray hairs, I'm still maturing in our marriage, in the church, and with others. And so as we go through this, I want to tell you there's great hope. I'm not what I used to be. I look forward to heaven when I'm not going to sin against you and you're not going to sin against me. And we'll just, it'll be wondrous. You won't have to wonder when someone makes some kind of remark. Were they trying to tell me something? Was that a joke? You know how we do, right? Or with a husband and wife. And you just make that remark, you know. It, they wouldn't be able to yell at you, but you got your little barb in there. We know what that's like. James 2.13 warns us, For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, next, Jesus commands you to remove your own log before helping your brother take out his speck. Matthew 7.3-5 Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. Well, how many of you? Well, I don't even have to ask. All of us, if something had one time or another had something in our eye, right? And we tried to get it out, and finally our eyes getting red, and the tears are coming, and we finally have to say, I need help. But we're terrified because when we want somebody to help, they come at us, right? And they're starting to go, you know, and they're getting in there, and you're going, that's my eye. Well, we all need this. And in fact, the Greek word for speck is much more than a speck. It's a piece of chaff or a straw or even a twig in your eye. So you really do need help. What needs to be addressed for the sake of another's eyesight and overall health. And must, but you must first deal with another important matter. And here Jesus has given us an absurd illustration, hasn't he? They have the twig. Yeah, they need help, but you have a log. Just imagine two men working together, 
at a table saw. And they have a 12-foot two-by-four. And one man's on the other end of the saw where the wood is being inserted, and the other man's helping to get it through it. They're making that two-by-four into a one-by-two. And so as they're doing, the man receiving the, the wood from the long other end, he's down there, and all of a sudden, a splinter breaks off and goes up into his eye. And he needs help because he can't see now as the wood's coming off. But as he reaches up, he hits the board. And the board, that 12-foot board, goes into the other guy's eye. And he is just, you know, he can't see. He's hurt. He can hardly stand up. But he's saying to his friend, Hey, brother, let me get that speck out of your eye. And so as he's walking over, you know, he puts a couple holes into the drywall. And he turns around and he breaks a window. But he's going over because he's got to help his brother. And finally, as he goes over to help his brother, he hits him in his other eye. Right? And they're both just in terrible shape. And no one's going to get out there with being able to see. Well, Jesus is willing to give us this kind of an illustration to show us how foolish we are. We have to take first things first. It's like the pre-flight instructions that you get on a flight from the steward to stewardess. And it says, if there should be a change in cabin pressure, first put on your own oxygen mask before helping others. Because if you pass out or die without air yourself, you won't be able to help anyone else. But let me give you a warning here. That you really have to, each of us have to have, and if I would give it, some of you would remember, but there's actually been a new version of Lost in Space, but you remember what the robot says, right? Warning, warning, danger, danger, Will Robinson. And the reason he says that is because we can go off on our own, and here, there's a danger now. Because hearing this, because we are, and you will see that the right thing to do is to help someone else who can't see. But you might think after hearing this sermon that you are now going to be the official speck inspector of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And as you go around now trying to straighten out everybody else, you'll probably blind them. Because this is a very tender and careful thing and we can't even beget, do what we are called to do. It, there's no doubt. It doesn't say, leave the other person, get blind. But there's first much that we have to do with ourselves before God that we can see. John MacArthur helps us to recognize the sinfulness and the seriousness of our hypocritical, uncharitable, judgmental logs that cause us to be unable to help our brother or sister, remove the specks that they might have in their eye. He says this, The very nature of self-righteousness is to justify self and condemn others. In doing so, people play God, because they judge themselves on the basis of their own standards and their own wisdom. Self-righteousness is the worst of sins because it is unbelief. Because in it, we trust ourselves rather than God. 
Self-righteousness claims to be both the lawgiver and judge, prerogatives that only belong to the Lord. Because the self-righteous person sees no sin in his life, he sees no need for God's grace in his behalf. Jesus is saying, stop and think about your own sin. Until you've done that, how can you confront another with his shortcomings? Now, you know the parable that Jesus has given about this with the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself would be exalted. Now, I wish I had enough time to tell you how to go about getting these logs out. We don't have enough time. I'd have to come back next week and preach on that. But, Lord willing, you'll be sent this afternoon a piece of paper, or I mean a a link, or an email, where you can, I provided a handout for all of us that helps us pray Psalm 139, 23, and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me to the everlasting way. And with it are six questions and scriptures that will help you just consider your own. Now, every time you have to help someone, you can't do this. Where's that piece of paper? But it begins to train our hearts to look to ourselves. And so I hope that that will be a help. Matthew Henry calls us to deal with our logs, but don't then forget to love others enough to care for them with their speck or straw or twig. You must not say, I have a log in my own eye, and therefore I will not help my brother with the speck that's in his, but I must first remove, reform myself that I might thereby help another. And of course, Galatians 6.1 tells us, Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. How can this be done? Well, I told you about the handout and the prayer, but it's bigger than that. Because Jesus tells us we have a log. That big, hunking piece of wood. And our friend that might be blinded or can't see, has a twig. A smaller piece of wood. But beloved, we can only go to others when we go to the one who hung on a tree. Even Jesus, our Savior. And until he works in our hearts, until he gives us the mirror of his word, that we might begin to remove our own logs, we won't be able to do that. But that is indeed what he does In Acts chapter 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, and God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior 
to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. He will lead us to the repentance we need to get that log out so that we can indeed help one another. Well, that's the nature of charitable judgments that we are to have in Christ with one another. But remember, now just five verses later, as this scripture ends, Jesus says, you must make biblical judgments about dogs and hogs. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Just five verses later, after judge not, lest you be judged, Jesus is saying, judge. Because now, by his grace and with his help, you're ju judging in a terrible biblical way. I want to talk about three ways that we're called to make these biblical judgments. And actually, just confess something on myself, because I preach once a month now, and this sermon I gave two weeks ago. Yep, you're getting a rewind. And thankfully, I had another two weeks to add more to it, but I took a bunch off. Mike warned me, now, Pastor, remember. But as we come to this and we deal with this, I was thinking it would be a really great way for me to help our woke society. Because we have so much to judge with our culture today that's running crazily away from God. But the truth is, is that Jesus is really talking about these judgments within the church first, our brothers and the church at large. Here are three areas that we must be careful in our judgments in the church, but we are called to make judgments. First, that Jesus is indeed the only way to salvation. He says that himself in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can't give that up. There is no other way to God. No one can go up any mountain. We're dead in our sin, needing God to give us life and repentance. Second, we're called to judge in regard to having right attitudes and thinking or a biblical worldview. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that we judge what we do in all of life as Christians according to the word of God, not the latest expert in the world, not the newest part of science that comes along, but what the word of God tells us in regard to faith and godliness. And the third area is righteous living. And of course, that's the Ten Commandments where we started, right? But they're summed up by Jesus, the first table, the first four commandments, and the last six, the second table, when Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus is talking about, first and foremost, all of life, but first and foremost about theology and particularly salvation. 
For he was speaking about the judging of the false way of salvation offered by the scribes and the Pharisees. They were saying, work up yourself, gump up, make sure you keep the Ten Commandments and all the other rules that we've made and then you'll be okay. And what do we all know about that? That is failing on our own. There's only one who could keep them perfectly and that's our Savior. They still apply, but they apply because we love our Savior, not that we'll be saved by them, but we've been saved to become like him. So the dogs and the hogs are false teachers. The dogs in those days, most of them were scavengers. And if you found one on the streets, you would go the other way or get bitten. And the hogs weren't any better because the Jews weren't supposed to eat any pork. And they were found in the garbage dumps. And when you were there, they would try to tear you apart with anything else they found. So he's talking about the false teachers that arise within the church. I'm thinking, oh, how am I going to speak to this world? We should, with truth. But really, it's within the church, because the church is always going to go off on its own tangents. Second Peter tells us this, and notice how he's talking about dogs and hogs again with the false teachers. He's giving us a commentary on this. Second Peter 2, chapter, verse 1 and 22 but the false prophets arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Well, there's been many cases of this across history, but let me just bring up three. One fairly long ago, in the Reformation in the 1500s, all the reformers left the church, the Roman Catholic Church, because it had given away the gospel. That there's only one way of salvation, and that's not earning it or deserving it, but it's through faith in Christ and his substitutionary work for us and so the reformers, those who were protesting, left that church. They had to leave the church because the gospel was no longer there. More recently, a hundred years ago now, J. Gresham Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And it was written as a result of a sermon by Emerson uh, Fostick, um, Harry, excuse me, Harry M. Fostick, and he was a part of a big liberal church in New York City, and he was on a radio program. It was, a, it was the most listened to radio program in 1923, and he would preach on it. That's the kind of culture we had, but what he was preaching and the sermon and what, and what Machen's book is responding to was a sermon that he said, should the fundamentalists win? Now really what it was is that Machen's book called Christianity and Liberalism, his thesis was, is liberalism is not Christianity. Because all this false teaching was going across America over the airways, and he had to respond to that. They were saying, they were saying don't listen to the fundamentalists, and this is what the fundamentalists, and they're, 
fundamentalists who sin like anybody else, but these are the five fundamentals, and they were seeking to change them for the culture at the time. The inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement, that is the need to Jesus to die for sinners, the second coming of Christ in person, and the reality of biblical miracles. In Machen's introduction, he said this, we're animated and driven by no mere polemic person, purpose, but that men may turn from these weak and beggarly elements and have recourse again in the grace of God that is the gospel. When the gospel is lost, we must speak up in the church. And from it comes the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. From it comes Westminster Seminary. And from it ultimately comes the Presbyterian Church in America. We're all a part of that heritage as all the mainline denominations have left the basic truths of Christ and so within United Presbyterian churches, you have PCA and OPC. Within Lutheran churches, the Lutheran Church of America, you now have Missouri Synod. Within Baptists, you have American Baptists, the liberal ones, and then the Southern Baptists. And it goes all around all the denominations there are because the church has had to come off and say, we must deal with with untruth when the gospel is lost. Well, sadly, just this past week, and from my own understanding and little bit of study and what I've seen over the years, this has happened again. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, wrote in World Magazine, the train has left the station, and he also wrote similarly in his briefing that happens daily. He said this, in talking about Andy Stanley, one of the most influential pastors in the United States, who back in 2018 called for the ch church to be unhitched from the Old Testament, arguing that the Old Testament should not be understood as a go-to source regarding any behavior in the church. Andy Stanley has taken two-thirds of the Bible and basically in his ministry and church ripped it out and thrown it away. If you listen today, in Sunday school, our brother told us about Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, we have gone away from the living waters and hewn cisterns that cannot hold water. This is a horrible thing to say about the one who was Charles Stanley, a great Baptist preacher, his son, and the ministry there. But what's happening particularly recently is they're hosting a conference called the Unconditional Conference at the campus of Northport Point Community Church in Atlanta, where the website for the conference bills it as a two-day premiere event, especially designed for parents of LGBTQ and children and ministry leaders. They state, no matter what the theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from a quieter middle space. Well, they have people teaching there, two different men that are married to other men. There are no middle spaces on some of these issues. Moeller states, 
that truth. He says there is no middle space on these issues. I think both sides understand this is the most basic disagreement we could imagine. So are sex and gender. It's over ontology and being. It's over scripture, the authority of scripture, and the interpretation of scripture. We are increasingly being told we are the problem. We're being increasingly told one way or another that if your theology gets in the way of the sexual and gender revolution, then change your theology. But this is really where the matter is. He says this, it's over God and the gospel. It just doesn't get any more basic than this. I recognize the gravity of my words I'm using when I say that what we see here is a departure from historic, normal, biblical Christianity. Again, like Sunday school where Jeremiah was saying, we have a false hope without the message of faith and repentance. And Moeller ends with this. The New Testament calls us to reach people, but it calls us to go into all nations and preach the gospel, but includes faith and repentance. Those things are not easy to say. I didn't want to tell you about this example in many ways. We're called to truly love those around us in our families, one another, the church. And notice we're not just going outside the church here and saying, oh, that's the world where we're all tempted to do and we need to speak to the world. But beloved, we have to do that hard work of speaking to one another. Now be careful. We can just do it because that's a sin we don't like. Right? I'm not, that's not my sin. Where we got these giant logs in our own eyes. God calls us to have that examination, that repentance, that trusting him. But we're talking about not life in here for 60, 70, or 80 years. We're talking about eternal life. And out of true love, as God does that hard work of our own lives, of ripping out our logs and giving us healing, we must go to our brothers and sisters and help them see the truth of Christ and his love for sinners and that he is our only hope. Brothers and sisters, in the scripture this morning, Jesus has told us that our judgments must first and foremost be looking at ourselves and our own sin, removing logs from our own eye that we might be able to see and judge biblically. Then, for the sake of another, for the sake of a brother, a sister, a parent, a child, we need to remove the speck that blinds them. We must humbly and carefully seek to remove their speck that they might be healed, both here, but most important, eternally, and be with Christ. Let us look to him. Our God and Father, I know that my own tendency in hearing this would be to come quickly to the end because I love judging and I know how you have to work to tamper me down and run me back to Christ and the cross. 
and work on my own logs. And I thank you that you do that. But I thank you that out of love for others, you call us to help and to love them and do what's hard that they might resist because you're coming at a sensitive area. But oh God, would you do the work as you send us to help heal and save and care and love for others who are blinded, even in our sin as we often are, and point and bring and love them with our Savior Christ. Help your church, O Christ. Help us to your honor and glory and for our good and for those we love because of Jesus. Amen.